Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's great to be back, Paul. It is one for 41 in the cricket on a Thursday afternoon as we're recording. Our guest this week on the show is Kerry Craig, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. Kerry, welcome back on the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me back. Um, look, it's great to see you. Um, the world is very interesting. The yield cur- curve is flattening. Uh, Bitcoin is rallying. Uh, stocks are continuing to grind, grind higher, uh, and central bankers still don't know what's happening with inflation. That's where we're going to start. Phil Lowe gave a very interesting sp- speech this week. Um, you know, anytime the head of the central bank talks, it's, uh, you, you need to tune in. Um, the new period of uncertainty. David, do you want to talk us through um, some of what he uh, raised uh, in his speech this week? Oh, just... Coming back to you know a lot of it was coming down to uh, to wage pressures in particular, and uh, obviously that transfers through to uh, to inflationary pressures. But just the uncertainty as to you know past relationships that used to exist between the two no longer seem to apply. We're seeing you know the, the labour market is starting to go and tighten up, uh, but not necessarily seeing that same transfer to higher wage growth, um, and that's creating all sort of you know, dramas in relation to. What does that mean for domestic sourced inflation? No, it's very, uh, no, there's a pretty solid relationship between the two. Um, just really like other central bankers, we've heard Janet Yellen earlier this week going uh, and talking about, you know, no, they're not really sure why inflation is so low. And there's now some doubts about whether it's truly transitory. Um, and just kind of a conundrum that no one really knows what the answer is to at the moment. Kerry, it is a fascinating question, isn't it? Probably one of the biggest um, conundrums in global economics uh, uh, at the moment. Um, can I ask you wh- how you see all of this? Like, why is inflation so low when employment is high um, and industries are growing, uh, company profits are doing okay? Um, what do you think? Well, I think you can uh, break it down into, well, first of all, the world is very different since the, the great financial crisis. But in fact, you can look at, well, there's, there's structural reasons why inflation is now lower, put it down to demographics and, and aging populations. Uh, you can say there's cyclical reasons why inflation has been lower. So, you know, the bottoming out in the manufacturing sector, that coming back is leading to more pressures. And also there's idiosyncratic reasons. So throughout the middle of the year, we saw inflation miss in the U.S. like five months in a row. A lot of it was due to things like phone pricing or there was lodging costs or pharmaceutical pricing that sort of have been one-off factors that have kept it um, low for a period of time. So, you know, in really technical terms, you'd say that inflation has just had a bad roll of the dice. You know, that's the economic phrase for putting it onto it. But now it is a case of saying, well, those idiosyncratic factors have passed. We do see those cyclical pressures building in terms of inflation, but why are they not building faster? You know, they are coming up. If you just look at inflation, it is definitely firming around the world. We no longer talking about deflation. China actually has a very high level of inflation right now. It's exporting that inflation around the world. But we think about that relationship, as, as you so rightly pointed out, between unemployment rate and in- inflation. That transmission mechanism is the wage growth, but it's more about the expected inflation that comes through from that. So if the unemployment rate's low, why are we not seeing higher in wages? Because 
I think there's a, first of all, a very long-term memory for people who've said, you know, it wasn't that long ago where I was really worried about my job, particularly in the U.S. because we came out of the great financial crisis, and maybe I don't demand higher wages because I'm pretty just happy to have a job right now. Uh, this is something that uh, Phil, Phil Lowe has raised specifically. Um, he did it earlier this year. Basically, when people don't feel confident about their um, employment future, um, they're not in a very strong bargaining position for wages. Mm. Um, David, can I ask you, like, how do you see this? Because everybody, like, I think everybody has this, you know, broadly some kind of globalization is part of it, technology uh, is part of it, you know, supply chains getting upended because of, you know, different transmission me mechanisms for, uh, for the delivery of goods and services. Um, but there's all sorts of moving parts to this. Um, and as you pointed out, Janet Yellen's wonder, saying, we don't know what the full story is here. Phil Lowe is say, saying the same. So everybody's kind of in this same boat. Can I ask you, what's your take on it? I think the globalization is a big factor and uh, the ability to go and do tasks uh, by people around the world is, uh, is one area that you can now go and find uh, similarly skilled staff in other locations. Uh, I know that makes labor market tightness in, in developed markets, you know, maybe not so tight as what it would be in the past. Um, you know, we obviously saw quite a, a sharp drop in commodity prices up until, you know, the start of 2016. That wasn't another factor that's gone and led to it. But technology to me is, is one of those things where it's just, it's making things streamlining processes. And to me, that's one of those things. Competition obviously is another major factor as well. You can bind those two together. Then I think that explains quite a bit of what's going on. One of the ways that I sort of think about this is um, using, say, for example, Salesforce, um, the software package which helps people, uh, you know, sales teams make better decisions, gives them more insights about their customer bases, all of that kind of thing. Uh, Twenty years ago, if you were had a piece of sales performance software um, and you sold Caterpillars uh, or machinery out of Perth, and your software provider was uh, in Sydney or it was in uh, San Francisco. For you to suggest any kind of improvement was an incredibly laborious process. Um, you basically wouldn't do it. Um, there's no way of making those suggestions back to the guys who make the product. And then when they did make the product, they would have to put it on a boat, get it to Sydney, and then truck it across all of Australia. Right? So that created a lot of price. Um, and it also created uh, a lot of jobs along the way. Now, what happens is if I'm selling Caterpillar's machinery out of Perth, I can jump on, I can talk specifically to a product development customer service person from Salesforce. That can go into um, product development immediately. And it gets, if it's approved and this feature uh, gets approved, then it gets rolled out to all of Salesforce's customers within days. Um, they just wake up the next day and they have the uh, feature in their, in their, it's one of the ways that I think about that. And if you think about all of the different moving parts that have been removed um, from the process, um, and that is just one thing. Um, and along the way, you know, we're kind of wrestling with all of this as a, um, a, you know, in advanced economies around the world. And in Australia, um, we're about to have Amazon. Um, we're recording on Thursday, and I think when we got out of this podcast, um, which is around lunchtime, uh, the, the, the platform, one of the world's biggest companies, might be live with its retail offering in Australia. Um, Kerry, the consumption outlook, it's so important to the overall 
uh, economic activity mix. Um, how do you see this, um, the, the shape of the consumption sector at the moment? In Australia, the consumer sector, sorry. The consumer, the household sector, I mean, it has obviously been right the driver of growth for the last four quarters or so in the Australian economy. It's, uh, you know, household consumption, it's 50%, 57% of GDP in Australia, uh, slightly higher in the US, about 70%. So the consumer is definitely a powerful force not to be reckoned with. And it comes back to that weakness in wage growth that's really weighing on the idea that the consumer can keep going. We've seen weak wage growth be offset by bringing down household spending rates as they continue to spend money and, and support that growth. Uh, bringing forward possibly income they would get from the sale of their house as they go up in effect, so that wealth effect coming through. And now we look at those things that are creating those headwinds. You know, the savings rate is now below 5%. How much lower can it go? House prices starting to soften or even the price appreciation is starting to slow a little bit. So we think about that wealth effect coming through. And then again, we have, you know, the fact that, you know, utility prices are going up. So we're seeing uh, higher prices, not across the board, but definitely those things that people have to consume. So we think about that actually starting to squeeze households a little bit. For me, it is the case that consumption is not going to be a stronger force in the Australian economy as it was, and that's why we do look at our outlook for growth over the next year and say, well, it should be probably around what it is now, if not a little bit better, but it's not because of consumption. It's coming through because of the other effects. You get government spending coming through. You are seeing early signs of uh, non-mining investment starting to sort of manifest itself, but not to a great degree. And then there's also the trade angle. So it's not going to be just reliant on the consumer to drive the economy forward. They're still very, very important. That's why we need that wage growth to pick up. But come back to your earlier point about one of the things that's really holding back that wage growth is productivity, because productivity is very low, uh, and the fact that people's bargaining power have been depreciated massively because of the rise of technology, Uber, TaskRabbit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so that's why we, we worry about that strength actually being maintained or at least um, not collapsing completely in the future. Can, can I ask you, do you think, um, this is massive speculation, but do you think consumers to, to some extent are holding back some purchases because of this anticipation of what's going to happen in the retail industry when Amazon uh, certainly, I think any person that was thinking about making a large item would see how prices adjust. It's just like waiting for a sale. You know, if you know that the sales are standing on Boxing Day, or they start earlier now, why would you buy it now when you can wait and buy it then? So I think the same thing will happen. People are looking and waiting to see what will happen with Amazon to see if it adjusts prices. I think you've seen a huge increase in price competition across retail in Australia already because you've had a lot of foreign brands land in Australia over the last few years or so. You know, you can just look down Pitt Street and see all the different global brands that are now, now there, look around the supermarkets, see the global chains that are sort of popping up to say that that has already started and that price war is actually what's keeping prices depressed. I mean, volumes aren't really going down. It's just the values of what people are buying. I think what's really interesting is success isn't guaranteed. Right? So Zara... Um, which launched to great fanfare uh, here in Australia a, a few years ago, um, is looking at closing its Gold Coast uh, store, uh, the store up on the surface where I was uh, a, a, about a couple of months ago. Mm. Uh, with the family, bought a couple of things. Um, actually, my dad bought me a, a, a jacket, which was uh, very uh, nice. Aren't you lucky, Colin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my dad's very nice. Hi, Dad. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, um, but success isn't guaranteed just because... Um, you've got a great brand and a lot of turnover in other markets. Um, Australia might not always be for you. And I think Amazon is going to have some very specific logistical challenges with, you know, sparsely populated country 
absolutely geographically huge. Um, I mean, the difference, the distance between Sydney and Melbourne on its own. Those markets like Canada where they've had that same challenges have been overcome. But I think that there's a slight difference with Canada because it's close to the US. But business planning would suggest that they've already factored a lot of those concerns in. But you're right, success isn't guaranteed, but you'd have to look at their success in other markets and decide they've got a better than average chance, I think. I think you've got to look as well. I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit critical, but uh, I found that uh, having been over in uh, in uh, Europe, uh, the US, uh, Japan, and places like that, and you go to those stores, you know, and I find that the stock there seems to be much more plentiful and different range of sizes and things like that, whereas my experience that I've had personally is that going to some of those stores, and I get the distinct impression that a lot of the things are being shipped out from where they couldn't sell in the previous season in Europe or the US or whatever else, and perhaps you know, the, the offering is not as great as what you're going to get in those other places. So I reckon that may be a factor with some of these uh, these these foreign firms that have opened up and are now starting to go and shut their doors because quite simply you know, unless you've got a waste that's 28 or you've got you know, a waste that's 45 or something like that then you're, you're going to struggle to fit into some of the clothes that are in there. Yeah I think you're dead right and I think also people see it too because they like exactly like yourself people go to other countries that go and see the comparable stores uh, H&M in the States Zara uh, in Europe uh, and then they come back and look at the Australian offering and kind of go well it's not quite as good. Um, and I don't think that's a terribly smart strategy um, if you're trying to make consumers feel special and um, and, and, and terribly well looked after. Um, so uh, all of this, um, with it con- um, constituting well in excess of half of uh, GDP, um, what's your outlook for where this is going to go next year? For growth or for retail? For growth. Uh, sorry, o- overall consumption growth. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's going to... Um not be it's, consumption growth is going to be driven by a lot of things. It's not just going to be driven by the arrival of, of one company. Sure. What's going to drive growth and what I think that central banks and the government and everyone else is looking for is, is a pickup in wages. I personally think you look at the wage price index and you've seen a trough. You know, it's, it's actually starting to creep higher. It will build higher as you see the economy, you know, move off a, a rather soft patch and start to firm up and you get broader distribution of growth through other areas. The weakness in the currency is going to help. We think about tourism and education support for that. Uh, and just generally the pickup in the global economy will slowly drag up the Australian economy, even though we're slightly decentralized or desynchronized from it. So it's going to be a, a thing that weighs on the equity market and weighs on people's wealth effects if they don't buy into it. But I think there's also an opportunity created here from an investment standpoint. Retail sector has been really beaten up with the idea this is going to come through. I think valuations there have become attractive in some areas. You know, my personal experience from using something like Amazon, it's a, a great place to go for price comparison and buying generic products. It's not where you go to buy specialty products or high-end kind of things or the premium into the market. So again, we think about that and how that's going to manifest itself. In terms so of so you were a, an Amazon customer in the States, were you? Uh, yeah, in London, man. I used it all the time. London, yeah. I mean, Amazon Prime was fantastic. Mm. Okay, yeah. how, how often would you use it a week? Uh, if I was going to buy, well, I, I mean, I'll admit I'm an exceptionally lazy person and I hate shopping. <laughs> so, uh, if I was going to buy anything, you know, Amazon made a first point to find out, you know, what's it cost. But more importantly, what people thought of it. The reviews on Amazon are fantastic, not because they, you know, some people go to a great length to actually write a very detailed review and you kind of like look at that when you're forming a decision about, you know, maybe spending uh, a significant amount of money, but also just because some of them are damn right funny. Um, yeah. But I think that that would be my, my first port of call when I wanted to figure out what's the price of something, what did someone think of it, and then you chop around and see what else was out there. But I think 
again, it's like, do I want to wait two days for someone to show up and then maybe I'm not home and I have to go and get it from the post office anyway, or do I walk, walk out to the high street and just buy it straight away? Yeah. It's sure going to be. It's sure going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, you know, we've seen evidence. I've reported this week that there's been a, a very, very dramatic drop in. Uh, advertising spend by retail companies uh, this financial year. So um, July, August, September, October, huge amounts of money getting uh, pulled out of the um, retail digital advertising spend. Um, this year was $17 million lower in terms of agency ad spend than October last year. And uh, digital uh, ad spend going backwards uh, particularly in the industry that I'm in, uh, is something that you kind of look at and go, wow, this is um, something really big is, is is going on here because digital obviously should be the area that is growing healthily year on year. Um, but um, that doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, and so I think we're going to see these second order effects. Uh, you know, I think particularly magazine publishers, uh, maybe some newspapers are going to feel, feel the pain. And that's kind of a, just a, a, a kind of accessible, relevant example for myself. Um, but I think there will be obviously, you know, a lot of disruption coming for all sorts of retailers, um, you know, from large companies um, to, um, to, to very small ones uh, down the track. Uh, all of this uh, means that um, you know, we're heading into a very interesting period for the Australian economy. Um, and it was part of what Phil Lowe was um, talking about uh, during the week. Can I ask you, uh, Kerry, about interest rates? So Lowe talked about, you know, there's no near-term likelihood of any move, um, certainly not a hike in the in the near future, as, um, as uh, many people were thinking. Um, what's your outlook for rates now? Well, we, we definitely had the view that they weren't going to do anything next year. I mean, this year... All the, the speeches that have come through have been very much highlighting the improvement in the labor market and then sort of raising the concerns uh, about household leverage and debt. So in that regard, the RBA has been trying very hard to stay still. It's like swimming into a current. They're just swimming and swimming and not going anywhere. And I think they're still in that position where they basically have to sit on their hands because they look, they look at the labor market and say it's improving. It's a sign of strength that should improve wage growth and everything else. But we know that that relationship is, is, is bent probably rather than broken. Uh, and so that's going to prevent them from hiking rates. And they still look at the housing market and leverage issues and say, well, I can't cut rates for fear of fueling that. I don't really think they can do much until they see that wage growth start to go over credit growth uh, in the household sector and that leverage at least start to flatten off and go down and they can actually point to that and say that's an improving situation. Right. The thing that creates a recession, the thing that creates an economy to, to stop moving is an imbalance. We look around the world and say there's not massive imbalances anywhere in this one because the recession or recovery has been so slow and gradual around the world. In Australia, you didn't have a recession. You had 26 years of growth. Fantastic. Now it's coming back to bite you a little bit because you've got this imbalance that needs to be fixed. And so I think until that imbalance starts to get corrected, it really does tie the hands of the RBA to a certain extent. And the fact that you know markets and investors are thinking about the RBA even hiking rates because other central banks started talking about it in the year does seem a bit uh, disingenuous to me just to say mm. just because of the rest of the world is, we should be too. I just We're not there. No, I completely agree with you. Uh, Dave, what's your outlook? Um, I, I know we're in a few weeks' time we're going to be doing our Christmas special and um, I'll be asking you for your, uh, your call on rates uh, in 2018. Um, but how do you see the challenge now for, for the Reserve Bank and um, what, what the equation is for rates? <sighs> well, first of all, the equation for rates is that I don't think they're going anywhere uh, anytime soon. And I do think there's a meaningful risk that they could still go and cut again. 
the issue that they're going to go and have to try and manage is that whilst trying to go and keep the economy humming, they're trying to go and, and keep the, uh, the housing market from getting overheated again. So they've already succeeded with the help of APRA to go and slow it down. But you know, coupled with very, very low wage growth and the slowing housing market now, I'm slightly concerned about the household sector. You know, when you see the retail sales reports recently, uh, yes, in nominal terms have gone down. No, there was a 0.1% uh, increase in volume terms, so they were still there. But you're talking about a, a population where we're growing 1.6% per annum. That's like you now a pretty hefty, uh, hefty rate. And um, so that's telling me something that something's not quite right from the consumer standpoint. Whether that's transferred across the services, I'm not sure. But all these things are starting to go and bite. We've had higher electricity prices, higher gas prices, higher petrol prices, out of cycle rate mortgage increases. Um, and you put those things together, and then I'm not really surprised to see that retail sales have fallen so dramatically. And now we've got the housing market starting to slow as well. And if that slows too much, I think the psychology amongst, amongst droppers and households will be, um, let's go and shut up shop. And if that happens, then I think the RBA is going to have a very big problem. Um, but they're very reluctant to go and cut, and understandably so, because they saw what happened back in, uh, in 2015, 2016, sorry, 2016, when they went and cut rates twice. You know, the housing market took off, and they're acutely aware that there's a risk that the same outcome might occur if they do it again. So on property, uh, clearance rates back again. Mm -hmm. um, so what did we have in Sydney this week? Uh, uh, Sydney was below 55%, which, wow. is, which is a level which is – Pretty much associated with declining prices, and we've seen that in the core logic data. Now, even Melbourne now, there are there in the mid sixty percent range. Now we're talking about two cities that you know were regularly printing eighty percent plus clearance rates uh, not too long ago. So there's been a quite a distinct you know pullback there, and that's obviously coincided with APRA's uh, you know moves and you, know, you can say affordability, more stock being available as well. But I suppose uh, one way to characterise this: a fifty five percent clearance rate is almost half of all the houses on the market are not selling. Yeah, and of course, that's only the auctions that are being reported. No, there's a whole no, there's a whole gambit that are not actually reported. So you presume that I don't know too many real estate agents who wouldn't want to go and proudly say, we managed to go and sell this this property. So in reality, you're probably looking at a, a rate that's probably sub 50%, which you know, pretty much explains why prices have now stalled. And you know, if you get much lower than these levels, and you know, who knows what's happening, the trend is certainly lower for the time being. It, could actually lead to you know, lower prices across the country. Well, look, um, thank God the ashes is coming up so that <laughs> we can talk about, you know, like this, the other national sport um, that we have. But obviously property, and particularly this year on, on the show, um, we always have been asking all of our guests what their outlook is. Uh, so, Kerry, it's your turn. Um, need to ask you how you think this is going to uh, play out. The ashes or the property market? The, the property market. <laughs> uh, the property market. Well, yeah, absolutely right. I think we we look at the, the same data that you guys do. We look at that core logic data, and you see that the Sydney house prices have uh, have unwound more than anywhere else. I think it's the froth coming off the top. You're seeing you know decline in foreign ownership coming through. Those absolutely right. Those APRA rules are starting to bite, and those macroprudential rules are starting to work, which is what they're designed to do. Um, Melbourne's slowing at a slight, slight slower rate, but I think other cities are stabilising. Uh, and actually offering sort of more balance when we look at that, say Perth, for example. So Yeah, 0% the, is they're like the dead flat, um, I think, the last number that so I saw. It's, yeah. it's, again, a fragmented market around the country. A uh, bit of price depreciation, part of slowing of price appreciation is no bad thing, but that's very different to say prices are falling. So year-on-year -year prices went from running 11% middle of the year, now they're down to 7 they might come down to 5 um, I mean, I think personally you'll see a lot of people who will still buy in when the prices come down just a little bit. 
they won't be fearful of saying, have I paid too much this house? Maybe it goes down a little bit in the near term, but you know this is a longer-term investment. If I hold on to it for five, ten years, I think it's going to go up in price. And there is still definitely that uh, unrelenting demand for people to want to own property in Australia. Absolutely, they probably turn these auctions and go, not paying that, but you know, how much lower does the price have to be before they would start to bid? Yeah, I, I get the distinct impression that the Australian psyche is that uh, no, there's always going to be a backstop. No, that, so I can't imagine that, uh, no, that regulators would want to forcefully go and see like a, a 10% nominal, uh, let alone real decline in house prices and stuff like that, because they know what damage that would do. So I, I think you're right. You know, and you throw in population increase as well. You know, that's a natural uh, uh, source of, uh, of demand. So uh, I agree that uh, no, it can't be too uh, too dramatic any price or before you'll start getting some demand. But you know, for the time being, obviously it's it's creating a few headlines. You know, it's been so rare that we've seen prices go back it's, uh, backwards for uh, for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like tiny retraction and uh, retracement in uh, in prices, and people are running around. Some people are running around like their hair's on fire. But uh, it obviously increases. Uh, affordability, um, you know, well, if it can be sustained, get a little bit of a pullback in the market, the market comes back to these people who've been, you know, it's become this big social issue now in Australia that houses are not affordable. Um, you know, we don't want to get into a situation where, like in San Francisco, where teachers cannot live in the areas, in the communities that they uh, they, they teach in because the, the just salary is just impossible to make ends meet uh, if you want to uh, rent even uh, in particular parts. Of, you know, so um, you know, healthy. Um, like uh, uh, we've talked many times on the show about how um, good, strong markets, David, um, should have healthy pullbacks from time to time. Yes, we have. And, uh, no, there's no uh, no disagreement that uh, no the property market is cyclical, and I uh, know there is going to be upturns and downturns. So you know, it's part of uh, part of life. You know, a lot of the time it's uh, it used to be influenced by interest rates. Uh, now more so, it's uh, it's more the macro pre, which is uh, you know sort of dictating what happens. So. Uh, I, I'm not overly concerned about you know, a, a crash per se, but you know, obviously what the effects will be, even for a marginal slowing, I'm still a bit concerned about what they may do for the, uh, the consumption outlook. So one of the things that might uh, stir a bit more activity in the property market is if the currency weakens again and uh, houses in Australia become cheap, and that's what, go- what we're going to talk about next. <music> You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here with David Scott. And our guest this week is Kerry Craig from JP Morgan Asset Management. Okay, uh, Kerry, one really interesting thing that's happening. Uh, we talked about the Australian dollar uh, has been falling. It's now uh, 75 and a half cents, I think, last time I looked, uh, down from you know, where it was fairly sustained in the high 70s for a long time. Um, but there's uh, um, there's been a bit of a change, hasn't there? Absolutely. I think the... Uh the, the year to date, 2017, you could characterize it when thinking about the currency that it was uh, resilient to a lot of changes that sort of brought it down. Um, and, you know, when it started testing 80 cents, I think that was probably a bit of a worry for the RBA. But, you know, these things have become desensitized to some of the things that should have driven it. So interest rate differentials, iron ore prices, the things that have typically made the currency move weren't making it move in the way that they should do. And, in fact, we're pulling in opposite directions. So there's been a lot of talk about where yields are going, uh, particularly at the short end and the longer data maturity. So we think about how we were all waiting for the Federal Reserve to raise rates for the last couple of years, and this year they've finally got around to doing what they say they're going to do, and you know we'll continue that policy over into 2018. So based on that, 
interest rates going higher in the in the US, staying lower here, that should mean our currency weakens because money and cash will flow to where it can get the greatest return, where it can earn the most interest. Money has a passport. It can go anywhere in the world. So um, maybe you can talk through this because I think there's probably a lot of li- listeners who have um, you know heard um, uh, you know terms like um, uh, yield spread. Um, you know, uh, swap rates, all of that kind of stuff. Maybe you can break that down, I think, for people. Like, explain why the difference between rates on different bonds um, makes for interesting trades and makes money move around. Absolutely. So we think about... uh in terms of the currency, we think about the, the shorter dated bond yield, so things at two years or three years in different countries, particularly in the US and Australia. We, we focus on those maturities because those are the ones that are most sensitive to central bank cash rates, and they will move in response to that. Uh, and you know they will typically have a, a lower yield than something at 10-year because you're not being compensated for inflation or anything else. Uh, the difference between those two things, if you're looking to park some money for a short period of time, you can say, well, I can earn, I don't know, 1.8% here in Australia and something you know, something similar in the US. If you're a US investor, you'd say, well, should I go to the effort of translating my currency into Aussie dollars, sending it to Australia and then investing it there, or should I just, or, and have the risk the currency moves against me, or, or just I keep it at home? And so as those levels of yield and interest rates start to become closer and closer together, there's just less demand for the Australian dollar because it looks like less of a good opportunity compared to what we're seeing in the US. Which and then this starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, starts pushing up absolutely. yields and de- de- them depreciating the value of the bonds. And exactly that. And this year what we've seen is that uh, in Australia, as the markets have started to think about the Reserve Bank of Australia not hiking rates, you know, taking those out, which they had factored in, that, that yield here is falling, that interest rate here is falling, where the exact opposite is happening in the US, where they're starting to say, well, yeah, the Federal Reserve is going to hike rates more than we had thought. And they've started to push that two-year-old up. That interest rate differential, you know, was sitting around 80 basis points, has now come down to basically zero. Uh, it hasn't happened very often. I mean, you have to go back to the sixteen 2000s. years. Yeah, yeah, I think sixty you, years, sixteen yeah. years, sixteen years. So two thousand was the last time it happened. What was the currency when back in two thousand? <laughs> Fifty cents to the dollar. So people worry about this and say, "Wow, the currency is really going to come down a long way." You got to account for inflation in that as well. But I don't think you're going to see the currency fall back to 50 cents in the dollar, but certainly not something that happens very often, and it should be the force that drives the currency lower because it just doesn't look attractive to hone the Australian dollars in that concept. The counterforce, the thing that's pushing the dollar up, and the other thing that if you overlay a chart against the currency versus the iron ore price, they tend to follow each other very quickly. So while interest rates and where you could earn the best of interest rates has dragged the currency down, the fact that the commodity prices and iron ore prices have been higher has held our currency up. So you've had these two forces pulling in either direction. One of the reasons it's been so resilient over the last year. For our mind, commodity prices should be stable. As we see a weakening in China, at least a little bit lower, interest rate differential starts to narrow or fade or completely go away, and therefore the currency will come down. But those effects aren't as strong as they were in the past. We think about them becoming desensitized to that. So next year, we're looking about December next year, what the currency is going to be, you know, 5% lower. Maybe it's at 72 cents, something like that. It's not thinking about it going back to 50 cents or even 65. So, Dave, um, when you were in markets and uh, and when you were trading, um, you obviously have your own models and your um, ways of thinking about the different factors that go into making up the market price of of particularly the Australian dollar. Can I ask you, uh, what, um, to, to what extent is this rates, the, this rate spread uh, between, the, say, the Australian 
um, Australian government bonds uh, and and other benchmark global bonds. What's the the level of influence um, that that plays in in the, the in the currency? Because this is now becoming a very such an interesting story as um, as Carrie just pointed out. Yeah, it's uh, look. There's no definitive answer for it. No, it is an influence. It's a major factor in what determines the other currency valuation. Uh, Kerry talked about in you know, terms of trade, commodity prices are another important factor. And you look what's happened recently. You know, not even just iron ore, but coke and coal, another big export. LNG, which is just starting to go and ramp up here as well. You know, that's starting to go and benefit because of what we're seeing with Brent crude prices. Um, another factor as well is uh, is just general risk sentiment and what's happening in the global economy. The, the Australian dollar is you now basically floating. It's and it's very tied to how the global economy is going. You look at things like you no know, to go and judge how. Investors are feeling. Go and look at things like you know, uh, emerging market stocks, uh, you know, high yield uh, bonds and stuff like that. And you're seeing that they've been rallying. And so sentiment is strong. The global economy is getting better. So for a commodity-linked currency, you know, that's obviously going to be a major factor that goes and underpins the Aussie as well. So that, to me, explains a big difference, a big reason why rather than being you know, back in a you know, 50 cents you know, where it was when the, the two-year yield spread used to be negative um, – yeah, that's probably explains why it's nowhere near that level at the moment. So, uh, Kerry, uh, one of the things we were talking about just before we came on is that um, the, the, the yield curve, which is basically the, the difference between the longer dated bonds and, and the shorter dated ones. Um, I was looking uh, this up this morning, and when the yield curve is inverted, basically when you've got a higher uh, short dated yield, um, then and, and the, the long dated yield goes lower than that. Uh, in the US, that has a perfect track record of predicting recessions. It, a recession always follows uh, when the when the, the near term. Uh, it's, in some ways, it's obvious, but maybe you can. Um, it's one of the things you're very good at explaining some of these uh, concepts to people. So maybe you can talk through um, what's happening at the moment with um, with the yield curve uh, and why uh, it uh, is something that is worth watching. It is. I mean the. The, the recovery around the world has been so elongated and I think people have been so slow to add to risk that it's like the volcano that hasn't erupted, right? So the longer it goes, the more severe people think it's gonna, people, uh, the, the effect is going to be. And so we have these early warning signs like the yield curve shape is one, the spreads on high yield debt is another, or how the credit market is pricing things in. But for the yield curve, you know, as we talked about, the, the short end or the two-year part of the yield curve is being affected by the outlook for Federal Reserve interest rates. So that's pushing things up. And then we think about, again, leading to our earlier conversation, people's inflation expectations being quite low, wage growth being quite low. And then at the sort of longer day, the two-year or 10-year maturities, excuse me, the things that you want to be compensated for are the risk of interest rate rises, the fact that inflation erodes a fixed interest product or the money you're getting from that bond. And so, therefore, if that number on the 10-year is not going higher, it's because people aren't thinking about growth being a lot better in the future, inflation a lot better in the future, and saying, I don't need to be compensated for it because it's just not there. So that yield curve starts to flatten. Um, and you're right, as a yield curve is very steep, that indicates low interest rates, a lot of growth in inflation, brilliant, that's what you want to see, flattens out as you go through the cycle. And definitely in the US, we think about it being near the end of its cycle. Labor markets are very tight, they're running out of people to hire, supply side constraints, you know, it's just getting to the end of, of its um, recovery, and it will eventually lead into recession. The question now is about distorting impacts, things like quantitative easing have had on the yield curve. Uh, the fact that you still have central banks buying up bonds in the European Central Bank and in Japan, even though the Federal Reserve has said, 
we're not doing that anymore and we're actually going to bring down our balance sheet, the fact that yields are still low and negative in many other countries around the world makes 10-year treasuries look very attractive in the mm. U.S., even at lower yields. These are depressing forces that are weighing down that long end of the curve, which should be going higher and the short end is rising. And so that's why people start looking at flattening yield curve. So it is a perfect indicator of recession, but generally the two-year yield falls in the recession environment because right. people are thinking – Interest rates have peaked because the economy is running too hot. They'll start to cut them. The two-year yield goes down, not up. And so there's forces that drive the shape of the yield curve can be a long and short end. The one that's driving it this time is the fact the long end hasn't gone up. And so I think it's about what is determining that flattening or inverting of the yield curve. And the other things we look around the world and say, what are the rest of the warning signs doing? They're actually looking green. There's a lot of things out there that look yeah. great. PMI numbers, which are going to come out this week, are probably going to be very strong. Uh, wage growth, even though it is very low, is actually picking up. Consumer confidence is at record highs. 16-year high in the in the eurozone right now came out this week. People are actually very fundamentally in, uh, encouraged by what they're seeing in the global economy. Businesses are talking about spending more money. You have one thing that says actually we're heading for a recession, and that one thing we know is being distorted by factors that have improved the economy over time, such as central bank bond buying. So we look at it and go... Yes, it's a worry. I think there's enough of it to explain why we shouldn't worry about it right now. Ladies and gentlemen, you will not find a better explanation about uh, what's going on at the moment. I completely agree that uh, the, the back end of the, uh, the curve is being anchored by you no know, central bank purchases. There's a lot of uh, factors. You know, it's got a perfect track record in the past, but this has never been done in a QE era like we're seeing right now. Uh, and I completely agree that it's uh, it's a really good assessment and uh, you won't find a better explanation why you should probably avoid you know, getting too concerned about some of these stories about you know, how the, uh, the yield curse flattening and potentially might go inverted because there seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of people who are getting a big hoo-ha about it when you know, realistically look around the world and see what's going on and things are better than they've been in you know, probably at least a decade, if not more. Let's quickly look at some of the issues that have come up uh, recently that um, have – uh, brought some money back into um, uh, safe places like bonds. Uh, so uh, Germany this week um, I thought was really interesting. Uh, Angela Merkel um, looks like Germany may need to go back to an election because um, coalition talks have collapsed. Um, Kerry, uh, you know, you, you look at this stuff. Uh, what do you make of it? Uh, politics and geopolitics has been a massive thing for investors this year. It's just mm. been everywhere. Um, Germany, yeah, absolutely, could go back to the uh, go back to the vote and uh, back to the polls, back to the booth, sorry. Uh, the polls, though, basically say the same outcome. You wouldn't <laughs> exactly get a change. Right. So you go like, <laughs> really, I mean, the politicians must look at that and they say, well, we could have another election, but we'd probably be in the same place. So while the talks have broken down, um, there's not a big... There's not a big chance for a shift in regime, I think. I think you still got a chance of a collaborative agreement or a coalition being formed there. Um, so we don't worry about it in a big way. The markets didn't react to it at all. Germany's still a safe pair of hands, and, and the governments don't differ that – sorry, the parties don't differ that much in their views. You know, we do have the AFD that are sort of that far right-wing group that which we worry about because they did um, actually perform very well, and they have the potential to disrupt and bring in this anti-European sentiment to the government. But I think that will largely be avoided. And in the meantime, if you end up with a caretaker government, that's no bad thing. You know, we've seen caretaker governments been in place in, in European countries uh, for the last few years as they try to sort themselves out. Just leads to a point where you don't get any change. You know, you get stability. Markets like that. Investors like stability. You don't get the reforms you need in the long run, so you can't last forever. And Germany does need to do some spending, some infrastructure to bring themselves up to scratch. But uh, I don't think this is something that will say, look at Germany and say that's going to be a, a source of uncertainty. The Italian election is a bigger one. You know, North Korea is, is something 
something that's always going to be there. What's happening in China and a potential for a policy misstep is, is something that's probably uh, higher on the list of political worries, but again, not a driver of, of markets uh, in a big way over the long run. Uh, and then you can just look at how these political events have affected markets over history. Uh, and we've done this. You know, we've looked at all the different geopolitical events um, for the last 50 years and just seen what the market has done. So we used the U.S. market in this case. And you can say, well, you know, time zero, that's when the event happened. Generally, markets do sell off on these geopolitical events, you know, these threats of war, these threats of incursion. Uh, and they recover within 12 months because people freak out and then sell and then realize that, you know, the bearing is largely pretty much benign on what's going to happen to corporate earnings or anything else. There's only been three times that hasn't been the case. One was the tech bubble, uh, one was uh, in Afghanistan, and, and the other one was the annexing of Crimea. So, mm. you know, you need a pretty significant event to actually say that something that is, is could, could affect markets is going to affect markets in the long term. So creating a buying opportunity more than anything. I think in this environment where people are worried about elevated markets, dips are being sort of quickly filled in by people allocating cash uh, back yeah, in. And with rates where they are and um, plenty of cash sitting around on the sidelines. Um, we, I know we need to wrap up, um, so I'm going to ask you about two things that are completely uh, crazy. One is uh, the English batting lineup, which we'll get to us in a second. Um, but uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but the other first thing, uh, cryptocurrencies, um, just because everybody's fascinated by it at the moment, uh, do you have a 30-second view on Oh, I mean, I think they're, they're phenomenally interesting. Um, I think the problem is a lot of people don't understand actually how they work, what you can do. Like questions we get all the time are like, what can I actually buy with these things? What do I do with them? You know, people just see them as a, a way to hold it and it goes up in value or, or not. Uh, personally, I like it to, to you, know, you know, way back when when you're carrying around little bits of gold in your pocket and then someone came along and said, no, you're going to use this bit of paper from now on. And you went, no, I'm not doing that. I think eventually these currencies will, you know, in whatever time span, will be the way that we um, purchase and consume using these rather than, than physical cash or even, or even um, debit cards. But until they're regulated uh, and, and until they actually become something that provides stability without this volatility, they really are just a driver of speculation. The technology that lies behind them, that blockchain, that is fascinating and what that could do to increase productivity and how that could be applied, though. Yeah, it's um, it's it's um, certainly going to be fasc fascinating. I think blockchain in particular, um, it's already uh, there are all sorts of contracts being run on blockchain, etc. Uh, and the way you can share information with parties across um, across blockchain, it actually cuts out an, an awful lot of very laborious, very um, uh, useless work that kind of goes on at the moment in business and I think that's going to be really super interesting and um, probably help people do things that uh, people should be good at rather than uh, pushing paper around. The robots are coming. Bad, yeah. bad news for our back office workers. Yeah, I know. So quickly, uh, let's talk about the rugby. Uh, the thing that I'm most excited about uh, uh, in sport at the moment is uh, that I discovered in the Six Nations next year, Ireland play England on St. Patrick's Day at Twickenham in the last game of the competition. So if there is a Triple Crown, Grand Slam, Ireland and England maybe, they'd certainly be the two top teams going into the competition, two favourites to win. Uh, so it might come down to a showdown on St. Patrick's Day uh, in London, which would be a stack of fun. And the only issue would be it would be about, I think, about three o'clock in the morning here in Sydney. So, um, so I'm sure that would dissuade you from. Long. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure you're not going to dissuade you from going to find me a bar. It's open 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or well, it might be the bar uh, at at home on my couch. But uh, uh, certainly very excited about it. And uh, the summer is coming up, so and there's plenty of uh, cricket, um, which is just underway. Are you looking forward to it? 
I am looking forward to. It. So, you know, who can't get excited about a, an Ashes series? Uh, it's a, to me, this is the official start of summer. I feel like, you know, when you see that first ball in the Gabba Test, you know, that summer's coming, you know, beaches, you know, barbies and the cricket. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I think that it's going to be far tighter. You know, I'm very concerned with some of the selections that the, uh, the Australians made. Uh, Tim Payne, not keeping for his state. That's very unusual. Um, Sean Marsh. Uh, has a history of uh, of breaking down. You know, even before this test, uh, you know, was under an injury cloud. Um, I'm concerned about the batting lineup. The bowling lineup is A grade, so I'm not concerned there. I think Aussies will win three two. There'll be a result in every single test. Big call, uh, Kerry. Uh, your sporting calendar for the for the summer. Um, well, it's just coming back to that game. I think you've got to be worried about England next year because they're building a championship based on the performance they had against Australia last weekend. I yeah. mean, that's they they've they've turned to people who can control games into just winning games really quickly, uh, which is phenomenal. Reminds me of the All Blacks back in the day. Um, <laughs> but actually, the sporting calendar. I've got to I've got to talk about um, Sally Fitzgibbons. She's uh, number one on the leadership tour for surfing, uh, and their final event starts on the 25th in Hawaii. And you know she could win it for the first time. And I think that's an amazing thing to watch, an amazing thing for an Australian athlete. Awesome. That's a really cool thing to watch. We'll uh, certainly keep an eye on it uh, on BI, and we'll uh, keep all of you readers um, updated. Uh, our guest on the show this week has been Kerry Craig, uh, global markets strategist at JP Morgan. J- uh, Kerry, great having you back on. Thanks very much, Kerry. Uh, and David Scott, as always, thank you. It's been a great chat. Thank you. I'm Paul Golgan. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show's on iTunes, where you can rate us uh, and leave us a review. Uh, we're on Twitter at BIAUS, and we'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.